Welcome everyone to Finance Podcast Week and the special live stream panel, Market Predictions 2021, with Niels Kastrup-Larsen from uh, the Top Traders Unplugged, as he speaks to Grant Williams of the Grant Williams Podcast and Bruce Celery from the Moolah La Money Podcast. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week is a week of live stream sessions much like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive pre-release episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel, channel available for free, and you can replay any of the panels on the Finance Podcast Week podcast channel. Download the Podbean app and follow the Finance Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time about all of the live streams and specially released episodes for the week. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see that we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. Podbean. <laughs> the content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only, and you should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcast constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instrument instruments. And now we'll go ahead and hand this off to our fantastic panelists. So take it away, guys. Thanks very much. And thanks very much to Podbean for making us part of the uh, finance podcast week. I'm sure I'm speak for all of us, when I say that we look forward to being part of this and discussing the topic that we were given, namely the outlook for 2021. So hi to you, Grant, and hi to you, Bruce. Nice to be with you today. Thank you for the hi, invitation. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And and maybe as a little bit of context, um, I was uh, invited to be a moderator with very short notice. So I hope I will be able to cover all the topics that Pernilla would otherwise have covered, but probably not exactly the same. And since the three of us come from quite different parts of the financial world. I hope our conversation will touch on all of our specialties like personal finance, global macro, and perhaps even some quant and behavioral finance topics. So let's see how, how we go. But before we can even attempt to talk about what we think 2021 and how that's going to play out, I think it's important to perhaps share our views on where we each of us think we are right now and perhaps discuss a bit about how we got to the present moment, which I think a lot of us will agree is quite an important and potentially quite a pivotal moment in financial history. So perhaps, Grant, I can come to you first and, and see how you see, see uh, you know, where we are right now. Sure. Thanks, Niels. Um, yeah, look, I think, I think we're at a very important juncture right now. I think we had a a huge scare last year with uh, with the onset of the COVID pandemic, obviously, which market action suggested was um, something really that the world hadn't experienced in a hundred years. The response to that from uh, from central banks and from governments on a on a fiscal and a monetary uh, side of things has been just I hate to use that word unprecedented, but it really has been. You know, they've thrown the kitchen sink at this thing. Uh, and what we've ended up with is um, a massive disconnect between the economy and risk assets. And so I think the reason why the juncture we're at the moment is quite important is that we, I suspect, at some point in 2021, we'll start to see whether markets at all-time highs or economies suffering 
you know, the, the worst damage they've suffered since the Great Depression are more important. Uh, now, the, the, the fiscal and monetary authorities are going to continue to try and do everything they can to make sure that um, they keep the wheels on this thing. Um, but ultimately, look, we've got we've got 10 million fewer people in 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 the um, in in working in in the United States alone. But never mind the figures all around the rest of the world. You know, that's 10 million fewer taxpayers. Uh, that's 10 million more people who are going to need some sort of government assistance. And so, you know, a change like that is important. And if, I think if you look at risk asset prices, you could be fooled into believing. That, uh, that it isn't important and it doesn't necessarily matter. And this is really just a continuation of this idea that printing money uh, can solve any problems, both in the short, medium and long term. So I think 2021 is going to be at some point very important um, as we try and figure out whether, you know, the, the economic damage done by the last 12 months doesn't matter because, uh, because the stimulus measures applied can kind of wash that away or whether the damage done is going to be too great ultimately and overwhelm the amount of stimulus or require more stimulus of a magnitude that will ultimately be reflected in in, in weakening currencies and, uh, and high inflation. So I, I think we're at a very, very important juncture. Yeah. And before, Bruce, I want to hear from you. I just want to ask one more thing of you, Grant, because I know you study history a lot and financial history. And in, in the in the way you see it and you think back on 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 what you've uh, you know not just experienced but kind of studied is there any repeat so to speak i mean is the path to where we are today something that was predictable something we've seen before or is this really completely kind of uh, a new moment in time well look, if you if you go back to euripides in the in, in the bible you know you you, you will see uh, he said that um, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and that's absolutely true. So we have seen all of this before, just maybe not in this combination, in, in disorder. Um, and so, you know, we've seen a pandemic before. We saw the last one really, uh, a major one like this was the Spanish flu in 1918. We've seen um, a Great Depression. So we've seen an economic uh, upheaval like this before. We just haven't necessarily seen these, uh, sorry, Ecclesiastes, I said Euripides, I meant Ecclesiastes. Um, we, you know, we, so we've seen all this before. What we haven't seen is the current combination, and what we haven't seen is this all happen in, a, in an age of purely fiat currencies. And I think that's potentially going to be the, the deciding uh, factor here. What does all this mean in a world where, um, where governments and central banks do currently have a license to print unlimited amounts of money? Which the temptation is going to be overwhelming to do that, as we've seen. You know, no, no sooner had. Um, President Biden got his first stimulus check through, and they're already talking about another three or four trillion dollars to throw at this thing. And that's going to continue because all the evidence would suggest after the last decade of, of money printing having uh, ostensibly no ill effects, um, they will believe that we can continue doing this. Now, it, it, those people looking for inflation uh, after 10 years of, of central bank stimulus and quantitative easing will, will point to the fact that the CPI remains benign. But of course, that inflation is being seen in asset prices, which are at all-time highs. If that if the stimulus gets to where it is supposed to be targeted, which is directly into consumers' pockets, which is, let's face it, where it's needed right now, then we could be into a very, very different um, environment, one that will, that will require 
significant adjustments to just about every portfolio on the planet. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll definitely get to that uh, point, Grant. Bruce, um, how do you see things uh, today as we kind of come out of Q1 2021? Yeah, I want to begin by focusing on my worldview. And my worldview is, and my focus for my podcast and all the work that I do is on the individual, which is not to say that the markets don't matter, they do, or that systems don't matter, they do, or that history doesn't matter, it does, but that what... I believe we can do that will make the single biggest difference for individuals is to help them focus on what they can influence and what they can control. So everything that I do and have been doing in the last 12 years with Moolala is about inspiring people to get a better handle on their money so they can live the life they want. And there is a part of that that is understanding the broader market context. And just hearing Grant speak, I'm already like, oh my God, he's got a PhD and I'm in kindergarten. Uh, But I have covered these conversations for many more decades as a financial journalist. And where I came to this focus on the individual was the realization that 90% of the discourse makes absolutely no difference for individuals. They don't follow the markets. They are not swayed by what's going on on the macro picture, the technicals. And what really the biggest thing that we can do is have them focus on what's in their circle of influence and circle of control in a holistic fashion. So that that is important because throughout our time together, I'm going to be grounding myself in the names of the people whose white eyes and dark eyes and fuzzy hair and, you know, fabulous selves I picture as I deliver an event or host a show. Those are the individuals that matter. And again, not to say that the other macro and systemic things don't, but that's where my focus is. So all that to say, what I see now is a a pronounced distinction between the haves and have-nots. And we really have to think of them as very different demographics. The haves have in Canada probably $100 billion in their cash hoard. They um, are cannot wait to be able to spend their money, to travel, to eat out, to build a pool, to whatever. There's massive pent-up demand. And whether that will be enough to offset the economic weakness, we don't know. But the haves have got money and they're ready to spend it. The have-nots do not have that money. They are racking up debt. They are stimulus-reliant. They are, uh, as soon as those uh, the stimulus supports conclude, they will be seeking uh, creditor protection in numbers that we may not have seen before. Small businesses, entire sectors of our economy will evaporate once the stimulus disappears. And so that have and have-not culture or, or reality is something that uh, it maybe not from a market standpoint, but from a humanist standpoint, from a like, what are we on this planet for again, I think is really important to, to consider. The other dynamic that hits the individuals outside of the economic is a, a clarification in the individual versus the collective responsibility. And we see this politically playing out very differently in countries around the world. People who believe in the importance of wearing a mask, not because of their own personal safety, but because of the safety of the community. And that's a value that not everybody shares. 
Um, so I think these are some of the themes that inform the, inform the individuals. To, to Grant's point uh, on history, uh, I go back to something in very recent history, and that is the dot-com uh, boom and bust. And I hopefully will have some time to talk about the irrational exuberance of that time and what does and doesn't apply today. Uh, and then the, the other thing that I'd layer on to all of this, and then I promise I will shut my yap, is um, we have two other enormous issues that do play out in the markets and in the economy and in our workplaces. And those two are climate change and equality. So there has been so much um, ground taken and conversation had on both those two issues. And as things steady on the economy, it's going to be really interesting to see what sticks and what doesn't on those two particular areas of focus. I think it's also worth mentioning that I'm I'm in Canada, I'm Canadian, and uh, the views that we have around those things are different than they would be around the world, which is why I love the fact that we're we're on an event that is going to be heard and in and and uh, engaged with in many many different cultural contexts. Yeah, no, I appreciate that context actually, Bruce, because I do think it's important and, and you know, let's not forget that it's actually the individuals and human behavior that often drives markets. So having both uh, angles uh, is, I think, uh, great for, for our conversation today. Now, I wanted to also start out with a question that I know Pernilla had uh, kind of shared with us uh, in advance because she wanted to ask us about 2020 as a year. You know, was it a year to forget or market to remember? And perhaps what uh, both of you kind of learned from a year which was unprecedented in, in many ways, um, and, um, and also because we come from different fields of finance, our experiences is probably quite, quite different. So um, maybe, Bruce, I'll, I'll stay with you on this yeah. one and talk to, talk to us about sort of the, the individual's experience through a, a tumultuous 2020. What did they take away from that? Well, I, I think I think two things. One is that we really can survive anything. If you had asked me in March of last year, could you could you stand a world in which you saw literally no one and which your 11 year old was going to school in your house 20 feet away? Could you deal with that? And I would have said, no, absolutely not. And what we have shown is that we can. It wasn't fun, it wasn't great, and we're not even done it, but we have survived. Now, we have survived with significant consequence to our young people in particular. Just as a, as a starting point, uh, eating disorder rates in our country are up 50%. Our teens are in um, in care, in, in mental health care in ways we've never seen it before. So, But I think what I would say is uh, we've withstood it. We've withstood it. And in our time, that'll be a marker of this generation. As uh, you know, my parents withstood the Second World War. They withstood the Great Depression. Uh, and that's encouraging in terms of our strength as a, as a species. The second thing is, I clearly do not understand the stock market. Like, not at all. I do not understand the housing market. Not at all. Because I look at the calamity that we are still in from an economic standpoint, Markets are hovering at, at, at un, un, unforeseen highs. And the housing market is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. In this country, prices are up, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent, regardless of the market. It makes absolutely no sense to my logical brain. And I know we can get there in terms of, you know, interest rates being at record lows and all that stuff. But it, it illuminates to me that after all these decades I have spent following the market, never managing money, but following the market and talking to everybody under the sun, 
I don't know anything. That's a pretty important lesson, I would say. Grant, yeah. I'm sure you have a very different uh, uh, experience of the year uh, of 2020. Um, some of them might be somewhat similar to what Bruce just said, but uh, what are your key takeaways? Well, I, I, I think there's there's an awful lot of takeaways from last year, but but I just before I get onto it, I'd just love to just come back to something Bruce said in his answer to the first question, you know, about the individual, because I think um, what's really important to understand is whilst most people don't follow the markets, unfortunately, the markets follow them. Whether they understand that or not uh, is really besides the point. And I, and I think one thing that the last few years have probably taught an awful lot of people is you have to pay attention to what's going on in the world of finance because it does touch every single life on the planet in some way, shape or form. And you, and you may not realize what that is, but you, you know the, the, the fluctuation of daily prices, the fluctuation of the price of that home you wanted to buy, uh, touching back on Bruce's last point there, these are all affected by things happening in financial markets, chief of which has been either stimulus or quantitative easing. So, so for me, you know, this last year, I think if you're if you're a trader or you're an investor, you've had two very very different years. You know, if you're a trader and you rely on momentum, um, it's most likely been a wonderful year for you if you understood that no matter what happened, the uh, lawmakers and policymakers were going to throw the kitchen sink at this thing and they were not going to let the markets fall. If you're a short-term trader who just follows momentum, then you had crazy momentum to follow on the downside last February, March. And since then, you've had crazy momentum on the upside to follow. And and, it, and so for traders, it's been a really wonderful year characterized by two big momentum trades and lots of volatility. If you're an investor, it's completely different. Because if you were an investor in February, March, and you were looking to you know manage a portfolio for the long term, it would have been a very difficult and a very big ask for you to grit your teeth into the into the eye of the storm as it came at you last year with any kind of long-term view because the long-term view initially would have been quite rightly the economy is shutting down millions are going to be put out of work foreclosures bankruptcies insolvencies all those things are going to weigh on the economy for potentially years and so many people who were investors would have been shaken out of their investments into cash, uh, into gold, into things that they felt would protect them from that, only to see the markets turn around uh, and, and just run up in their face for basically, as we've had 12 straight months now, hit all-time highs. So I think it's been, it's been a very different year depending on, on how you interact with, with financial markets. And of course, towards... Um, the, the, the latter end of last year, most pertinently into the beginning part of this year, we've seen as the stimulus checks landed in people's bank accounts, we've seen this kind of retail phenomenon that's been you know, dressed up as a, as, a, as a Wall Street revolution of sorts. Um, I'm sure we'll come on to talking about that. I, I don't think it's anything of the sort, but, mm. but it has actually um, taken markets to, to, to do things that we really could not have foreseen for the most part which are completely irrational and which ultimately will end in tears and end in significant losses for a lot of people. But for now, once again, if you're a trader, have just given you uh, a series of open goals. So, so I think 
that that that's the key difference that I've seen is that it depends whether you're a trader or an investor. For one, it's been a fantastic 12 months. For the other, it's been a, a very perplexing 12 months. Can I provide a contrarian view? And I think I, I think Grant and I agree profoundly on one thing and disagree profoundly on another. So where we profoundly agree is the connection to everything. Finance connects, connects, every, connects to every single thing for an individual's life in both ways, as you say, Grant. Uh, we are affected by and we affect these, these broader macro trends. The thing that I would say that I don't agree with is you said, Grant, we have to pay attention to the world of finance. Did I characterize that correctly? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you have to you have to be more than completely ignorant of it. And and I would argue the exact opposite. <laughs> and here's here's the exact opposite. And here's why. So I developed a model years ago based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So we all, you know, anybody who's done Psych 101 knows it's like food and shelter first and all the way up to the tipping top of Maslow's is um, self-actualization. Fantastic. And you try and move your way up that way. I developed a model for personal finance uh, that uses that same way of thinking, but with uh, different levels on the pyramid for people to uh, really master. So cash flows at the bottom, debt's next, saving is next, investing is next, but I'm talking like diversified, low cost, just get the performance of the market, and only at the tippy top in return. So that's when you're, you know, you're trading Bitcoin or GameStop or you're doing something other than buying a, a broad-based S&P 500 ETF. And what I would argue is 99% of the population is incredibly well served by the priority pyramid, by my model. Because in this time, it is exactly the same thing you need to do. So the cash flow level, live within your means. The debt level, eliminate consumer debt. The savings level, if the pandemic has taught us anything, we need some emergency buffer. The investment level, low fee, diversified, long time, long time, long term. It's my pie. And it's only at the optimized level where you need to pay attention to everything. So you can imagine how on my shows and what I do in a very mass market, right? Like I do morning shows and I do um, uh, consumer stuff, news you can use stuff. It's ignore all that. Ignore it all. Doesn't matter to you. Because if you are doing these things on the pyramid, you are going to be even just uh, investing in something that's other than a Canadian equity mutual fund, you're ahead of 90% of people. Because the people who are in a Canadian equity fund are paying an MER of 2.3%. If all you're doing is uh, you've got your money in a low fee ETF at 0.3%, you're ahead of so many people. So I would actually argue you do not have to pay attention to the world of finance. You do need to pay attention to where you are on the priority pyramid and focus ruthlessly and intentionally and actively on uh, moving yourself up that pyramid for yourself as an individual. Bruce, uh, if, uh, if I might, I think we're perhaps coming at this from slightly different angles. I. I when I say pay attention, I don't mean you have to follow every tick of every stock and watch the markets every day. I need, what I mean is you need to understand how finance affects your everyday life. And unfortunately, there are far more people who are in, in all kinds of terrible shape on that on that pyramid with, you know, with regards debt, with regards um, investments, with regards the fact that given your time preference, particularly over this last year, you know, if you were... Uh, a boomer 
who is close to retirement, this last year could have been absolutely catastrophic for you and completely change your retirement years. If you are Gen Z, you're just getting into the markets, then by all means, put money into the markets and ignore it and don't touch it and don't pay attention. You can leave that if you have 40, 50 years uh, to allow it to grow and allow it to withstand the slings and arrows of, of regular market fluctuations. That's one thing. But I think the closer you are to, to drawing down on your retirement funds, the more important it's been this last year to, to be paying attention. Because you know, the, the, one of the earliest things I learned in my, in my investing career was that the, the one thing that can kill you is taking a big drawdown. You know, it's fine to take little drawdowns. It's fine to just incrementally um, make money gradually over years. The beauty of compounding will always work beautifully as a tailwind. But if you take a big, big drawdown, um, the kind that we get in a 2000, the kind we got in a 2008, the kind we had in March last year, mm. those take time to recover from that a lot of people don't have. So I think I think we're, we're, we're less profoundly in disagreement than you think. What, what I meant was... You have to understand how finance touches your life and understand the basics of investing if you are going to invest. Okay, great points, guys. Um, very interesting. And I think I'm going to continue a little bit on that. I would say my own personal takeaway from last year, and, and I work with a firm, we've been managing money for 47 years. So we have a pretty long track record. And, 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 and we base it purely on data, so no predictions whatsoever. And all I can say is that, of course, the, the way the markets moved last year was not in the data set or any data set uh, for that matter. And so mm. the big takeaway for, for, for us and for me really was risk management, the importance of risk management and how especially volatility plays into a lot of these risk models that we see um, today. And so speaking about volatility, and this might touch also a little bit on, on the point you brought up, uh, Bruce, but I also think it talks to, to Grant, and that is... I think a lot of people, and especially individuals, um, they think they might have a diversified portfolio, right? And yeah. um, but where the, what it comes down to when you break it down is that a lot of those uh, types of assets uh, or strategies are in fact short volatility strategies. But that's worked perfectly fine for the last twenty years or thirty years, and we haven't really had to worry about it. We've had a perfect correlation between stocks and bonds. It's been fantastic. Um, do you think, I mean, do you even think about this concept, Bruce, or do any of these individuals even be able to distinguish or identify the fact that a lot of what they think is diversified might actually not be so diversified at all? Yes, I, I do think about it. And we have a real home bias issue here in Canada and have for a very long period of time. In fact, our retirement savings program used to give you an extra bump if you invested domestically. And that has a, a legacy that will extend probably past my lifetime. So people are way overdeveloped here. Uh, so I think ac accurately thinking about diversification in all of its facets is hugely, hugely important. Uh, my starting point on you know that investing level of the pyramid though is it's pretty simple. It is Canada, US international bonds. 
It's four things. And we can talk about what that percentage looks like. But you have to understand, like for my population, they are going to their local bank branch and buying a really expensive mutual fund. And that's their first step. And then their second step is they're like, oh, oh, I heard there's a Bitcoin ETF. I should buy that. I think there's a cannabis one. And I like, I, I believe in the environment. So I'm going to buy something in alternative energy. There is very, very little rigor for the people who um, they engage lightly. They watch CNBC daily and they take the pics of Jim Cramer and they don't just don't have a lot of discipline around that. So again, I go back to this fundamental that if you have done all these other things to work your way up to the top of the pyramid, and then you want to take 5% or 10% on top and play with GameStop or whatever the heck you want to do, I don't care. Uh, but what we know in our market, at least, is people People aren't doing the basics and the basics are boring, but they're not particularly difficult. To your question, are people diversifying effectively? The answer is no for all sorts of reasons. And in particular with this massive market rise, I think it's very hard for individuals to rebalance to, um, to fixed income when equities have been so strong. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, Grant, you uh, probably have a slightly uh, different perspective. And, and one of the things that uh, certainly have drawn me to this uh, topic uh, is really what Chris Cole has been writing about so eloquently and, and, and how, you know, a lot of the world's uh, investments are actually short mall strategies, which will only really be realized, for example, if we have a, a massive rise in interest rates and, and so on and so forth, because then it's not just your equities and your bonds, it might be your house price that goes down, et cetera, et cetera. So how, how do you think about this conundrum of people being far less diversified and maybe taking on a, a lot more risk, uh, including professional investors, by the way, not just individuals? Yeah, look, it's, it's, a, it's a great point. And, and for anybody listening who is not familiar with Chris Cole, um, he, his firm is Artemis Capital Management. He, the website is ArtemisCM.com, I believe. Uh, and Chris uh, is, a, is a volatility investor. And, and I interviewed Chris a few years ago. Uh, and Chris said something that, that, that stuck with me. He said, you know, there really is only one asset class, and that's volatility. The only difference is some people understand that and some people don't. Um, and his point was that, that we, are, we are all invested in volatility, whether we, whether we know it or not. And for the longest time, for the last really 30 odd years, um, 35 years perhaps, the, the aim of the game has been to try and dampen volatility. And if you look at um, a chart of the VIX index, which is just a kind of representation of volatility, you'll see there are, there are periodic peaks when, when events happen, which, which bring chaos and volatility to markets. But it's a, it's a pretty steady decline over 35 years. Um, Unfortunately, when, when you do get those big explosions in volatility, they cause absolute havoc and chaos in the average portfolio. And, and the problem that's, that we've seen with a lot of the strategies that, that have grown up during that period of, of artificially dampened volatility and this idea that we can actually abrogate the business cycle um, has meant that a lot of people are short vol who don't actually realize it. And that's been fine because it's been a great and very consistent way to make money for a long time, being short volatility and, and taking in uh, the profits from that. Every now and again, you get, you get a spike, but those spikes have been pretty short-lived, except for you know, the big ones in, in 08 and 2000. We saw one in 2012 with the US debt crisis, the European um, 
bond crisis, those, those sort of things have slightly uh, longer tenure, but, but still the aim of everybody involved in regulating and, um, and managing markets has been to dampen volatility. So as soon as we do get a spike in vol, we see it squashed as quickly as humanly possible. So, so the, the, the better a strategy short vol has become, the more people have tried to build products around it. Um, and that's been great. But what we're seeing now is, is as, as we reach kind of the, the extremity of the arc of the pendulum, we've, you know, we've got interest rates at 5,000 year lows. We've got bond prices at 5,000 year highs. We've got equity prices at all time highs. We've got housing markets at all time highs. You know, we've reached kind of the end of the pendulum. It's straining at one end of its arc. Now, that's not to say this can't continue for a little bit longer, but but what we're talking about here with, with markets are generally natural forces. The, these are natural forces that, that will try and represent themselves, um, and, and they are cyclical forces. As as mankind is a cyclical uh, being, you know, we're, we're born, we live, we die, and that circle repeats, so are market forces, because as, as Bruce pointed out earlier on, you know, market forces are basically individuals uh, grouped together having an effect on asset prices. So if we are at the extremities of that pendulum and the natural forces are going to pull that pendulum back the other way, interest rates cannot be zero forever. Uh, markets can't be at all-time highs forever. These things just don't last. What happens? And what ultimately happens when that pendulum starts to go back the other, uh, the other way is that volatility also starts to go back the other way and volatility starts to trend higher again. Um, and that's potentially the biggest problem we face is rising volatility, not just one of events, but the, 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 the risk management and the, the, the general um, uh, closeness with which these, these high volatility events occur start to make volatility more expensive. Because if that happens, then we get the reversal of all these trades that have been short vol. Uh, we get the reversal of high asset prices. We get the reversal of high housing prices. And perhaps most importantly and most dangerously, as I think you touched on there, Niels, we get a reversal of low interest rates to not even high interest rates. We get a, an interest rate environment where they are trending to a more historical mean, which is, you know, let's call it 5% for argument's sake. Now, with the amount of debt the world has accumulated over the over that sort of 40-year period of declining vol, declining rates, then that normal mean interest rate environment is unsustainable with the current levels of debt. So this is why I think we're at some kind of tipping point. Um, and, and this is the thing that people need to be aware of, is that what, what we're seeing now where every asset price goes up uh, in lockstep, is, is an unnatural environment. It's created by unnatural interference with market forces in the shape of artificially low interest rates and uh, massive QE, massive stimulus programs. When though the effects of those wear off and even normality tries to reassert itself, then that volatility will increase. And a lot of people are short volatility, to your point, Niels, who have no clue that they are. Yeah, and that's just maybe I just want to add for clarification to the people listening. They might think that, hang on, I don't trade volatility. How can I be short volatility? Well, I mean, short volatility means you're just in a long only strategy like equities or fixed income or, or something like that. So we're all in one way or another typically uh, short volatility for at least part of our 
portfolio and some unfortunately probably for all of their portfolio but it's a nice segue to the next uh, topic uh, which i also think that uh, is is very um, you know tip- topical for for uh, for this year and that is this you know bubble or mania we're in uh, you know some people call it the everything bubble um you know is this the year it's gonna pop and i'm just curious uh for for you bruce is this something that people think about is it something where they take maybe some action because they are worried that this mm. is getting a little bit too mania like i think it is something that many people are thinking about it but not the mass market so it was a very small sub segment who were in the AMC GameStop BlackBerry game. I talked about it because it's newsy and it's interesting, but in uh, in relative terms, the percentage of uh, people who are trading that game is teeny, teeny, tiny. At a in a broader way, uh, the the valuations on the broad indices, I think people are talking about it a little bit, but mostly in terms of wow, I'm so amazing, my investments are doing so well, and the level of sophistication that would be required to help them guide through to making any decisions about other than rebalancing, right? That's a, kind of a connected but separate thing, for them to say, oh, I need to get out of the market. I don't think that that's a conversation to be had on mass because the people who were having it back uh, in March of last year, I know many people who got out of the market as it declined rapidly and they were hooped, right? They were hooped because the bounce back was so immediate and they had um, oversteered. It was just not the right choice. It was the right choice in that time was to sit and do nothing because look at where markets have gone since then. So my view is uh, we are going to have a market correction. Is it tomorrow? Is it in a year? I don't know. But having covered so many of them, I have the personal experience of, um, listen, waiting it out. And Grant, to, to your earlier point about boomers, they don't need to withdraw Uh, three years of living expenses in one day. They should have a portfolio that is um, balanced such that they've got safe stuff that they can access for at least a couple of years and not have to cash out on equities. So it shouldn't even be an issue for them if there's a market correction of 40%, right? Because they're just going to sit on it and wait and be happy they've got some dividends in there. They're going to shuffle off some income. So if we could call it Sure, I would be one of those people who would take the the take some profits and sit on the sidelines until the correction occurred. I just don't think we can call it. And empirically, we know that so few portfolio managers are able to call it repeatedly. There will be thousands who claim to have called this one when it hits, and and they will have. But it'll be more um, luck and magic than um, really being able to, because they would have been able to do it every single time if they had such such a superpower. So before I hear from you, Grant, I just want to maybe add one little extra um, spice to, to, to that question, and that is, um, I hear you, Bruce, saying, yeah, I and mean, we've seen these things before, you wait it out, it's fine. And, you know, I, I get that. Having said that, if we're in an, you know, all things being in a bubble, then it may not be a normal um you know fallout we get it may not just be one of those kind of buy the dip and sit it out for two years kind of thing so i just want to hear from you grant what 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 do you think um this quote-unquote bubble i mean is this really different this time so to speak 
Well, look, I mean, people will tell you it's never different this time. But but I think on that point of, of sitting out and waiting, you know, we've, we've if you look at, let's look at the, 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 the crashes of recent memory, right? We had, we had 87, which uh, saw the best part of a quarter of the Dow wiped off in a single day. That bounced back within a couple of years, right? Mm. We had 2000, where the S&P Dow Jones also bounced back, but the NASDAQ took a lot longer to get back to its its previous highs. COVID, we were back above our highs you know, within the year, which is remarkable. But if you go back to 1929 and you look at that that crash there, the Dow Jones took about almost 25 years to get back to its previous level. So, so this idea that you can just sit these things out and they and they they tend to bounce back fairly quickly, that's that's kind of a recent phenomenon and it's worked. And look, the, the market has become much more uh, attuned to this whole buy the dip philosophy and why not because that has been a tried and trusted uh, strategy over hundreds of years but because since the advent of the greenspan put in 87 it's it's become more and more a way people act because they understand more and more that the federal reserve has their back and they will jump in at the first sign of trouble and so you can buy the dip and and as the fed of inserted themselves more and more into the market process they have owned the outcome more and more and so they now are really forced to try and do this so the buy the dip strategy has become more sensible as time has gone on but unfortunately it's sucking an awful lot of people in to the point where it likely won't work again because if we do have another crash of the nature of of 1929 1930, you know, the, the, the Great Depression crash, that could take 25 years. Mm-hmm. That could take all the bullets that the Federal Reserve and the governments have to throw at these things. Um, they're all broke, as we as we know. So everything that they're throwing at these things is all borrowed money. Um, so look, it, buy the dip is fine until you get the one dip you can't buy because it just doesn't come back. And if you if you happen to get it in and out of your investment career, before that one, it's great. But if you happen to be buying the dip the one time you shouldn't, that's the end for you. That is the end for your investment portfolio for potentially your entire investment life plan. And just it's, it's just a case of people need to be aware of that. Um, and many people aren't because the, the, the history that people understand is the history of their own life and their own investment careers. And so if you are you, you know, if you've been investing for the last 10 years, you're, you're in your early 30s and you've really only started investing 10 years ago, you have a very, very different understanding of how markets work 100%. than someone who's been investing for 40, 50 years. 100%. And, may, maybe and, and to before, be, I just want to clarify, sorry, Neil, yeah. just one thing. When I, I wasn't saying buy the dip, just in case I, I wasn't clear. I said people can stay invested. The majority of people can and will stay invested. And when the carnage happens, it will be devastating and horrific. But if it is a paper loss uh, and they have time, the impact will be lessened. Now, the asterisks, which Grant, I'm glad you brought up, and you didn't mention the financial crisis, but that's another one where the bounce back was shockingly quick, right? Uh, the asterisks, and this I want to ask you, Grant, what percentage probability would you put on 1929 all over again? Is it a 20% chance? Is it a 50% chance? Is it a 
2% chance. And I know I've asked you an impossible question, but, but I think <laughs> that we're all, we're all talking probabilities, right? But so be, right. Be, before you answer Grant, before you answer Grant, because one of the, my favorite pieces of content out there is something you produced a number of years ago when you had your stroll down Washington DC with Neil Howie and the whole topic about demographics and generational cycles and the fourth turning. So I'd love your answer in that context as well, if you wouldn't mind, because I think that's important. Well, let, let, me, let me just answer Bruce's question directly first, because I think it's a really important one. And, and Bruce, this is the way I think of it. And the way I think of a lot of these, of these probabilistic questions that we have to ask ourselves. Um, and that is, when you ask what's the probability of another 1929, 1930 event, had you asked me that question in 1994, I would have said zero. If you ask me that question today, I don't know what the probability is, but I know that it's not zero. Mm. There is a non-zero chance that we have another 1929, 1930. And, and because of the severity of such an event, because of the damage it can do to your portfolio, your lifestyle, everything, uh, you need to now start thinking about, okay, well, well, what if that happens? And, and look, a lot of the things that we talk about, you and I, maybe to different audiences, but I'm sure it's a, it's a similar idea. It's look, these are the things you need to think about. And, and everybody has a responsibility to, to look after their own investments. Now, the decision they make may be to entrust it to somebody else. That's fine. But you still have to make that decision. And so if you are thinking about your, your portfolio, your investing future, your retirement, and what you need for that, then you have to constantly stress check that or, or have someone doing that for you. And if the, the probability of, let's face it, 1929-30 on a portfolio basis is an extinction event for many. If the possibility of an, a portfolio extinction event is suddenly not zero, then you have to think about it. You have to think... Okay, if it's not zero, is it 2%? And if it's 2%, do I have to mitigate that? Probably not. If it's 5%, if there's a 5% chance of an extinction event to your portfolio, I would argue you at least need to do the thinking involved. Okay, is there anything I can do on a simple level to, to protect myself and reduce that 5% for me personally to 2% or 1% or, or hopefully zero? So I, I think, I think that, that, that the idea that, it, it, it's a non-zero possibility now is very important. And, and I think the single greatest thing that anyone can do to try and um, help themselves calibrate what they need to do is to read history. You know, and there are two great books which I would recommend to people. One is called The Dying of Money by Jens O. Parsons, and that's Parsons, P-A-R-S-S-O-N-S. It's, it's out of print and a, and a hard copy of it will cost you thousands of dollars. But if you search, I think the Von Mises Institute online has a PDF. That's The Dying of Money by Jens O. Parsons. And the other one is When Money Dies, which was written by a gentleman called Adam Ferguson. And, and again, you can, you can, it's easy to buy a copy of the book, but, but it's also very easy to find a PDF. And, and both of these books give great accounts of hyperinflations in the past, um, before our memories. And, and when you read them and you understand how this kind of stuff happens in a real world environment how quickly it happens and the damage that gets done it will it will at least make you think uh that this is not just some kind of crazy 
back of a napkin kind of dream of someone. This is something that actually happened in the last hundred years. Here's how it affected people. Here's the damage it did. And these are the signs that we saw in the lead up to it. And if you're paying attention to those signs, then unfortunately, you can see many of them today. Uh, another book which deals with this is The Lords of Finance by Liaquat Ahmed. Um, and again, it gives an account of the central bankers um, between the world wars uh, and what they did, how they managed the economies, the decisions they made and how that ended up creating a world of problems. And so understanding history, and that was you know, part of my, my, my discussion with Neil was was around understanding history because if, if there's anything that's circular, uh, circular sorry, and cyclical, it is history. Mm. You know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, as they say. Uh, and those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. Those are, are great sayings for a reason, because these things do happen over and over again because of the cycle of humanity. So understanding past great inflations, understanding what led to the Great Depression, how it played out and what the triggers of it were, are vitally important. And then on an individual basis, assessing what would a Great Depression type environment do to my portfolio? And, and what probability do I ascribe to that happening? And what can I do to try and lower that probability to an acceptable level? Yeah. Yeah, great, great answer, yeah. Grant. Thanks very much for that. Uh, now we've only got a few more minutes left and I have to skip a lot of the questions that I, uh, and topics that I really wanted to get into, but uh, time flies. Um, but why don't we focus the last question on just, you know, as we stand today with all of the things we've talked about so far, um, what are the things, what are the, some of the solutions for investors uh, at this point? Um, you know, what do you do with your finances, your investments in an uncertain world, um, which we uh, clearly live in. So let me come to you first, Bruce, on that. Um, what do you want to tell kind of your followers at this point in time? I, I am going to be such a bore, such a total bore with what I am, <laughs> I am going to say. And Grant's going to roll his eyes and be like, has that dude ever read a history book in his life? But my audience and my, um, my focus is on people who don't are not ultra high net worth and they don't live in a world where they've got um, uh, the capacity, the interest in uh, working with whoever runs their money if they work with someone else or, or if they do it themselves at the level of sophistication. And I think there's a huge market for that and that's great and that's fantastic. If we have a 1929 all over again, it is cataclysmic for individuals. It's cataclysmic for the Canadian pension plan right? Because they have an enormous amount of equity. So um, we're kind of screwed. It's like an extinction event. It's like a meteor has hit the earth. And so to mitigate that, well, I mean, the first thing you're going to try and do some asset allocation stuff such that you're not entirely in equities and hope that uh, the fixed income for portfolio piece of your portfolio or the cash that you have is going to buy you the time so that you're not going to be eating cat food. I go back to the priority pyramid and ensuring that you are doing the things that are within your circle of influence and circle of control. So that is live within your means, eliminate consumer debt, have uh, savings in areas that are important to you, emergency, retirement, vacation, kids' education, and then invest in a low-fee, diversified, long-term way. 
If you do those things, that's the basics of insurance. And, you know, put it in a health context. I mean, there are lots of things that you can do that are at the very high end of taking care of your physical health. But at the low end, if you follow the Canadian food guide, you go outside and exercise with cardio four times a week, you get seven or eight hours of sleep, you're going to be ahead of 90% of the population because no one's doing those things. So I don't want to overcomplicate it. If you do the very basic things, you're going to be in a pretty good shape. And then S-H-I-T is going to happen. Grant, how do you see um, the opportunities for investors to, uh, to prepare their portfolios? I, I think if you are if you are young um, and you have time on your side, I think Bruce is absolutely right. You know, investing investing is a long term game. I think if you are currently closer to retirement and you've been forced into equities because you aren't getting yield on any bonds, that that's a whole different problem you have to face. But but you know, it's not really easy to to talk about investments that suit everybody. But one thing I think everybody really needs to start thinking about is this question of whether inflation is about to return because we've had one period of inflation really in the last i don't know 100 odd years right the 1970s we saw dramatic inflation um, and since 1980 since interest rates peaked and inflation was basically stopped in its tracks and, and, and brought to heel we've had uh 40 years now of disinflation lower inflation, periods of deflation. And so what's happened over those 40 years is the average portfolio has become constructed to succeed in a disinflationary or deflationary world. There have been many scares, many false dawns about the return of inflation. Um, everybody thought, including me, that at the beginning of QE, that that would be wildly inflationary. Uh, it wasn't on a CPI basis, but it was on an asset price basis. Um, but we didn't see the CPI that we that we thought we might the CPI inflation that we thought we might see. We didn't see the wage growth inflation that we thought we might see, um, and that has kept the, the situation uh, benign. Now, given what's happening with the stimulus, given how and where the the the, the stimulus is is being targeted, there is a much higher possibility that this inflation will begin to show up in the CPI. And if you look at what the Reserve Bank of Australia have done recently in saying that they are really going to change their mandate in effect until they see uh, you know, three to four percent wage growth, they will look through CPI inflation as long as wage growth isn't going with it. Um, that, I suspect, will be a guinea pig for other central banks around the world. And if that's the way this is going, then that's as close to a guarantee of inflation. As you as you are likely to get, they, the, the central banks basically say we are going to look the other way until inflation becomes entrenched. Now, that's a great problem because once inflation is entrenched, it's largely an expectations game, and if people fear inflation, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Your portfolio, as it stands now, if you've had any success with it over the last forty years, which most people who've been invested over that period have, is constructed to perform in a disinflationary or deflationary environment. If inflation returns, the vast majority of portfolios all around the world are constructed in the complete opposite way they need to be to survive that environment. So everybody needs to be paying attention to 
the inflation genie. They need to look at their portfolio or, or talk to their financial advisor and ask them straight up, do we have a plan for how we will adjust this portfolio if inflation returns? Because it will it will flip everything that we know on its head. What, what's been going up will go down. What's been going down will go up. Um, you know, it's likely positive for commodities. There are there are inflation ETFs, INFL, for example. It's an inflation ETF, um, which Horizon Kinetics have launched earlier this year, which is designed to, to, to do that. It's designed to perform in an inflationary environment. So there, there are definitely things you can do, but understanding that... Uh, the, the end of deflation, disinflation, and the return of inflation is going to change your portfolio 180 degrees is the first and perhaps the most important step to understand. Yeah, no, absolutely perfect. And I'm sure everyone who has been listening to us know that it is very hard to predict the future, but at least we can prepare for it. And I hope that's really what um, you take away from, from this panel today. And I'm grateful to you, Grant and Bruce, for making sense of these uh, questions and topics. And of course, to hot bean for having us so i don't know norma if that wraps up our uh, allowed time schedule yes thank that you so much niels we're going to pass it to ronnie from our team here at Podbean. hi there so before we officially conclude this panel we do have a giveaway and that is for a uh guide to okay, sorry there oh everything okay yep we've got you now yep <laughs> So we do have a giveaway, and that is a guide to 200 of the best investment books ever written from Niels. So the first person to comment an emoji, oh, it looks like we already have a winner. So go ahead and email me right here at ronnieg at podbean.com, and we'll get you connected so we can get you your prize. And so thank you, everyone, for joining us for this special live stream panel, uh, Market Predictions 2021, with uh, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, Grant Williams, and Bruce Celery. If you joined late or if you want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters and experts, you can replay this panel on the Finance Podcast Week channel. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see that we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. And for everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only, and you should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean, or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And with that, we thank everybody so much for joining us for this panel. And we're going to go ahead and hop over into our next panel. So we will see you guys there. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll see you on Real Estate Roundup. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks, Niels.